David Fincher. So originally we tried to get, uh, I think ILM did the, the new Fox logo. As I recall, it was actually being done when we were doing Alien 3, and we were trying to get the digital files of this so that we could put uh, some subliminal Tylerisms into the Fox logo. I actually went to Arnon after the thing and said, please let me do redo the Regency logo. So the opening title sequence was supposed to be starting inside the fear center of of Edward Norton's brain, and you the the electricity that's running through it is like photo electrical stimuli that's running down, running through his brain. These are supposed to be impulses, you know, fear-based impulses, and we're supposed to be pulling through. We're changing scales the whole time, so we're starting at like you know the size of a of a you know, a dendrite or whatever these things are. We're sort of pulling back through and we're going through the frontal lobes and we're going to exit. We go th into this, there's this whole black section in there where it's just like little particles going by, which is we've left the brain and we're now moving to the, um, the skull casing. This is inside the skull where Arnon's name appears. It's actually inside the, the skull of, inside bone which apparently there's some fluid in. I didn't know that. And then we pull out through this clogged pore <laughs> in Edward's face. I remember showing him, the first time we showed him the uh, rough test of this, he was like, my face is not that dirty. And I said, you know, this is all based on actual photographs of your skin. People are always asking me if I know Tyler Durden. So, but I wanted to do this... You know, if there's ever a chance for, for a Fight Club ride at Universal Studios, this is going to be it, the, the brain ride, flying down Edward's nose and seeing all the little crusty scabs at the end of his nostrils. That old saying, how you always hurt the one you love, well, it works both ways. We have front row seats for this theater of mass destruction. The demolitions committee. The shot where the the camera tilts down and falls, you know, away from the skyscraper and then goes through the um, through the street and goes into the subterranean parking and then across the street and into the other subterranean parking was kind of something that we hit on late in the in the film. We were um, trying to kind of come up with ideas for ways to show his thought process, his kind of manic disassociative state and so we had this idea we were going to do we, we we knew we were going to do the whole kind of tour through his kitchen and show how the whole kitchen had filled up with gas and how how his uh, apartment some kind of logical explanation for how his apartment exploded and when we started seeing the tests for it we thought we got to do more of this there has to be a couple of other times in the movie where we see kind of how quickly he he thinks his thought process and when we saw the photogrammetry tests of the kitchen stuff we started thinking well wow we could really open the movie on the 31st floor of this building and then go out the window and drop all the way down and see the bombs and see the ticking and see the the jerry cans and then go through the side of the van and across the street and into another so that became sort of a little not thematic, but it was a, a little bookended 
kind of a precursor to how crazy his thought process is. ramps up it'll be the corporations that name everything the IBM stellar sphere this is another example of it the um, galactic tour of garbage it must have been Tuesday he was wearing his cornflower blue tie you want me to deprioritize my current reports yeah. until you advise of a status upgrade make these your primary action items here's your flight coupons call me from the road if there's any snacks this is Zach Grenier he's a really terrific actor I don't think he really appreciated us saying, oh, you're perfect for this smarmy boss's role. <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever really likes being perfect for the smarmy boss's role. But I always wanted, the, I, I always liked the idea of, of the boss being this guy who's not, re, he's trying to kind of be empathetic, but to this, you know, guy who works for him, but he doesn't really want to get involved enough to truly find out how deranged he is. So he's always kind of trying, he's caught between a rock and a hard place, and it's only later in the movie that he realizes that this guy's a disgruntled postal worker in the making. The Fernie catalog idea was, again, some kind of visual representation of, of this, you know, the idea that we're a byproduct of the armor that we select to let people know who we are and that those that's not just clothes and cars and and you know hairstyles but it's also the furniture that you pick and whether or not it's you know sort of southwestern or pottery barn or you know ikea in this case it's ikea lipstick red seconds no you need healthy natural sleep Chew some valerian root and get more exercise. We had a funny thing when we, um, I got asked to do some liner notes for the record that the Dust Brothers did. And um, I got called by Fox Legal and they said, because I'd written this thing in the, in the liner notes that said the Dust Brothers are, you know, talented and and witty and brilliant and all these things. And, and the little quote ended with saying, they don't have a stick of Ikea between them. And uh, we got a call from Fox Legal saying, we can't use these liner notes because it's corporate disparagement. And uh, <laughs> I remember asking if they'd seen the movie. Have you guys seen the movie? Do you know what real corporate disparagement is? But uh, they were very nervous about Ikea being upset. Thus far, we haven't heard anything from them. Actually, I got a call from somebody said, <laughs> Well, can you rewrite this thing? Can you, does it have to say that they don't have a stick of, can it just say they don't have a stick of prefabricated furniture? And I said, no, 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 it's uh, Ikea, it's a joke, it's in the movie, you, you have to understand that. And they said, well, now we've called them, and uh, John King swears to us that they do indeed have a lot of Ikea furniture. And I just said, <laughs> you're not understanding what we're talking about here. So they ended up killing the liner notes. It's time for the one-on-ones. So let's all of us here follow Thomas's good example and really open ourselves up. Did you find a partner? And this is how I met the big Moosey. His eyes already shrink-wrapped in tears. Meatloaf, I was wondering who... Bob was always a favorite character of mine in the book, and I couldn't figure out who should play this guy, like who... And I was watching VH1 behind the scenes, and it was a whole thing on Meatloaf. And I remember 
watching this thing going, this guy is so sweet. He has this incredible sweetness, you know, and you, I always sort of remember him, you know, covered in sweat with long hair, kind of matted to his face, you know, bellowing at the top of his voice. And so I'd always sort of picture, and, and obviously the Rocky Horror image is this kind of Tasmanian devil on a motorcycle. But I saw this special and I thought, wow, he's, there's something amazing about him. And I remember saying to Edward, what do you think of Meatloaf? And he was like, I, Dave, I hope you're not going to populate this whole movie with like your music video friends. <laughs> and he came in to read, and I think he read for about 20 seconds. And he did this embrace right here, and he started doing his little high pitch because he does this much higher voice than he has in real life. It's a very little voice. It's up here because his testicles have been lost. And um, I remember Edward just howling with laughter and like literally it was about 25 seconds. We got through one page, and Edward looked at me and just, just he's perfect. We got to get him. And so we offered him the job right there. We tried to get these stamps made up for what a you know what a face would look like, so we could just like put glycerin on it and stamp these shirts so that all the shirts would look the same. And they just didn't they never looked right, so we ended up having to kind of paint them on the day. When I first read the book, or actually when we first started writing the screenplay, when Jim Wills was writing the screenplay, I was very concerned about who was going to be watching these dailies because we were going to be spending so much time shooting, you know, support groups for the terminally ill and all of the humor in the movie, If the, <laughs> for those of us who think there's humor in the movie kind of comes out of the voiceover and how he comments very cynically on his surroundings. He's very, um, he has a very sardonic sense of humor, the Edward Norton character. And uh, I remember thinking, we better have a really, really good producer on the lot at Fox. Somebody who can walk these executives through these dailies because they're going to see about five weeks of shooting that <laughs> it's just going to be a bunch of people with shaved heads kind of crying. One of my favorite movies as a kid was The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And I always loved the kind of little flights of fantasy or fancy in, in the movie, his little dream sequences. And I always saw the penguin sequence as being one of those little moments where you just kind of say, yep, things can get this surreal. Get ready. Bob loved me because he thought my testicles... And Marla's entrance is probably... One of my favorite moments in the movie, I just love the way she kind of takes the stage. She was so funny. She had these boots on that were clogs. You could literally, it was like a Clydesdale coming up the stairs. You could hear this woman coming from like three floors below. And so we wanted to really make that a part of Marla's characters. Like everywhere she went, she enters a room like five minutes before she gets there. You just says clomp, clomp, clomp. And this is a joke that was often lost on uh, preview audiences. They 
didn't really understand the sickle cell anemia gag. Marla. I love this moment. I, I love her as this kind of, you know, sort of perverse goth version of a, of a Tony Scott femme with the sunglasses on inside and she's sort of sleek but just a little teeny bit crusty. <laughs> she smokes so well. This is another example of the subliminal, what we call the subliminal brads. There's a four or five shots in the first reel before we meet Brad where Brad appears for one frame. And I always loved the idea of, you know, there was a book in the 70s called subliminal sex and it was like so, supposed to be sort of an expose on, on the advertising industry and and the use of subliminal imagery you know the idea of airbrushing skulls and crossbones and death imagery into ice for close-ups for you know johnny walker ads that would be in sports illustrated i always loved that idea and i loved thematically the way chuck kind of had this you know tyler's a character who abuses subliminal imagery to his own kind of um, morbid sensibilities. But I love the idea of him, you know, Edward's kind of trying to make peace with the world and trying to figure out his way. And there's this character who's about to come into his life in a meaningful way who just keeps appearing for one nanosecond. He's just there kind of, and he's always in this very sort of impatient, like, when are you going to get around to it? When are you going to create me? I can solve a lot of these problems for you. He's always sort of exasperated. Thank Chloe. Thank Chloe. Now let's ready ourselves for guided meditation. I never took advertising seriously enough to, to be worried about whether or not there was any kind of moral ambiguity about I mean I think that this film probably more accurately depicts my take on advertising and it's you know and, and what it provides for society than any of the advertising that I did but I you know you 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 work where you can you know I much rather start off making movies but nobody was that interested in hiring me to make movies early on so I did music videos and commercials as a as a way to just you know play with the tools hey we need to talk we had an idea early on that one of the images for the poster might be just all these stickers that say hello my name is or you know, these stickers that all these guys wear in the support groups. The name tags. Sylvia Plath sounds the word. I know we're all we're all dying, right? But you're not dying the way Chloe back there's dying. So So you're a tourist. Okay, I've seen you. I saw you saw you at melanoma, saw you at tuberculosis, I saw you at I love her top knot that she always has. She always has this like little kind of shark's fin or kind of pokes up above the frame. It's very difficult to, to frame Helena because she, her face is so beautiful and round and, and she has this kind of perfect little head. And then, you know, I think Michael and, and Frida came up with this idea of like her always having this like little 
spout at the top that's <laughs> and she becomes a real kind of cinematic conundrum it's very difficult to find a frame of her face because you're always kind of like trying to include this little thing at the top you know when people think you're dying man they really really listen to you instead of just instead of just waiting for their turn to speak edward norton has some of the best bags under his eyes i mean just naturally it's just as a person who says these kind of like circles he was perfect for this he's almost like buster keaton another faker present and i need this so you gotta find somewhere else to go can you stripe a cancel ward it's not my problem i was sent a book i was sent the book by um josh donnan who's an agent who's now one of my agents at ca who was an, a producer who had a deal here at fox he called me up one day and said i'm sending you this book and you have to read it tonight and i was like I can't read a book tonight. I, you know, I was finishing the game and I was working, you know, 12-hour days cutting and and uh, and I, you know, wasn't that inclined. I'm not the kind of person who reads a lot anyway. So the idea of sitting, he said, no, you can read this book. You can read this book in a night. And I was just said to him, look, don't pitch me the whole thing, but just give me a reason why I should read this book. And he said, okay, there's a scene in this book where this guy, who's this anarchist who pisses in soup and splices single frames of pornography into family films takes a convenience store worker in the middle of the night kind of kidnaps him and brings him out to the parking lot and puts a gun to his head and you know asks him what it is he wanted to do with his life and the guy says he wanted at one point to be a veterinarian but the school was too tough and and the guy cocks the gun and says give me your wallet and he gives him his wallet and he says i have your wallet i know where you live and if you're not on your way to becoming a veterinarian in six weeks you're going to be dead and i just thought okay, I got to read this book, send it over. And so I read it, and the next morning I called him, and I said, what do we do? How do we get involved in this? And he said, well, Fox just bought the material, but um, you can go in and sort of pitch your version of it to Laura Ziskin. And I'd met Laura before, and but I kind of didn't understand. I could not fathom the idea that 20th Century Fox would want to make this movie. But I went in and just sort of said, look, I want to take the book, make it into a movie. I, I don't want to change it that much. I want to try to maintain as much of this voice because I think, you know, ultimately the, the strongest thing that the film has going for it is Chuck's voice. He's, he's truly got his own take on things. So we kind of made this deal. I, I went in and I basically said that and we kind of made this deal. I said, look, I'm really not interested in getting involved in a big situation where junior development people read the script and we get these notes and I'll, what I'll happily do is not take any money and I'll go work with the writer that we can mutually select and we will come back whenever we're done and we'll bring you a script and a budget and a cast and storyboards for the film and at that point you'll have a very specific idea of the film that we want to make and you can decide whether you're in or you're out but I'm really not looking to get involved in some kind of long-term like to and fro back and forth and she was great she said fine that's you know sounds great and so we went away and about a year later came back and gave him the script gave him the storyboards gave him it was like a size of a bible or, or a giant unabridged dictionary boom put this whole package down and i said it's brad pitt and edward norton we don't know who the girl is yet and call me you got three days you know let me know if there's a movie you want to make 
And they called and said, yeah, let's go do it. And to their credit, I got to say, I've never been involved in a movie where, you know, things were, were not second-guessed. When we got into the to the screening process, you know, for the audience, there were definite issues about length, you know, most of which I had myself. If I could make the movie shorter, <laughs> I would, but given my intimate knowledge of all the material, I just couldn't get it any shorter. I probably could now, you know, if I had to, could take a year off and walk away, and go, I could probably. But uh, at the time, those were really the only concerns. I mean, I think that Bill and Arnon and Laura really, from the day they first saw it, really said, no, we, we like it the way it is. And, you know, if you can make it more user-friendly, great. And if you can't, great. Huge. You see where the fats burn to the seat with the polyester shirt? Very modern art. <laughs> Take the number of vehicles in the field, A, multiply it by the probable rate of failure, B, then multiply the result by the average out-of-court settlement, C, A times B times C equals X. If X is less than the cost of a recall, we don't do one. Are there a lot of these kinds of accidents? You wouldn't believe. Which car company do you work for? A major one. Initially, the movie was supposed to come out in the summer, and we ended up pushing back till fall after, uh, I think, our final test screening. And a lot of people speculated that it was because of uh, the Columbine incident. But in actuality, Bill Mechanic and and Arnon Milchen both called me one day and said, if you had your druthers, would you like to do more work and of course I'd always like to do more work so I said yeah no I'd love to and, and they said well how much time within reason how much time can you use and I said you know three four weeks if I could have another three or four weeks it would be great and so they spent the six hundred fifty seven hundred thousand dollars to give me that time to make the movie better and take a few more frames out but Nobody balked. I mean, it's very difficult to make a film like this if you don't have people who are saying, no, 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 we knew what we were getting into, you know, because there's a lot of room for interpretation, and a lot of people kind of come back and say, well, you know, we knew it was going to be about support groups and cancer victims, but, you know, we never knew it was going to be quite like this, and, and uh, you know, now can you can you soften the blow? But we never never got any of that. It was actually the best experience I've ever had with, especially with material like this. I mean, I could not have imagined that we would get the support that we got. Why? So you can pretend like you're interested. <laughs> okay. You have a kind of sick desperation in your life. We have the exact same briefcase. So... Sorry. I make and I sell soap. The yardstick of civilization. And this, this is, is funny. This is the scene and the scene where we meet Brad for the first time on the plane. I always loved the scene. I love the way it was written, because this scene doesn't exist in the book. They meet in the book. They meet on a nude beach, and I thought, hmm, as much as I'd like to shoot that and think that that would be a really <laughs> uncomfortable place for an audience to meet characters. I don't think we can do I mean, it's, it's all about a guy who's flying from here to there, and it's about all about this kind of workaday world and him being out of 
this time zone and somniacal and so we got to kind of set this meeting scene on an airplane. And so Jim came up with this scene and I always loved the way it read. And I always had this nagging feeling in the back of my head that it wasn't going to come off because there are certain scenes that you, you work and you polish them and you try to get them as tight and as concise and funny or whatever. And I remember shooting the master and the camera kind of eases over and reveals Brad behind Edward as he wakes up and, and it sort of, you know, it's really the the master, the two shot of them, and take eight into it. It was like, you know, not even looking at the monitor, just hearing it over the headphones. It was like, this is great. I mean, Brad was completely that aberrant creature that you meet that's fascinating. And Edward was so perfectly... I'm sorry, I just woke up and I'm not really sure what you're saying. And I'm not, you know, I mean, there's this great kind of half step behind. And I sort of, it's one of those moments where you go, oh, these are the perfect guys for this. <laughs> it just worked out. We have to use the indefinite article, a dildo, never your dildo. I don't own. I had everything in that suitcase. My CK shirts. My DKNY shoes, my AX ties. Never mind. The book takes place in uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and because that's like a, 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 a headquarters for a lot of credit card companies, and we wanted to make the film take place in Wilmington, Delaware, but there's some kind of clearance issues. If it's a specific town, then you have to get clearances for specific names, streets, you know, uh, apartment buildings. So we decided to, in the interest of clearances, which has really become just the bane of my existence, the whole legal clearances. I think there was a, there was actually a situation with Marla Singer where when they did the name clearance on Marla Singer, they went and they do this like global search or at least, a, you know, continental United States, they do a, a search for Marla Singer. And had they found five or six Marla Singers or a thousand Marla Singers, it wouldn't have been an issue because, of course, somebody says, hey, that's a, I'm being disparaged in this movie. My, I'm, you know, this chain smoking, you know, person addicted to support groups, you know, you're disparaging me. But if there's a thousand, you can always say, well, it's not you. It's meant to be this other person or whatever and prove that it's you. And uh, so you don't have to get any kind of clearances. But there's only one, one Marla Singer in the, in the continental United States, in Illinois somewhere. And, of course, as soon as attorneys get involved, you know, the whole thing gets completely fucked up. So it was like somebody called her and told her that there was this book and that we're making a movie that's based on this character and it had her name. And then all of a sudden her attorneys are calling and they have to pay this person off. So it becomes this big issue if you set the movie in a specific place. You have to get specific clearances based on, like the the Pearson Towers and you have to if they say it's Wilmington Delaware then you have to go and you have to get permission if there's a Pearson anything in Wilmington Delaware so we just said it was like any city any city anywhere but our homage to Wilmington Delaware is that the I believe the Delaware state motto is Delaware a place to be somebody so we decided to put the Pearson Towers their little their little logo at the on their brass sign is place to be somebody we also had the delaware state flag in the backgrounds in the property department kept bringing the delaware state flag and we would put it on on the um 
flagpole in this scene. You don't see it because the camera never tilts up high enough to see it. But of course, all of the Fox representatives were down there on the set watching the monitors, making sure that we didn't see the Delaware state flag because then they were going to have to go back and re-clear everybody's names. There might be a loose tavern in Wilmington, Delaware. We had the same suitcase. Uh, the clever guy. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Uh, I called a second ago. There, there was no answer. I'm, I'm at a payphone. Yeah, so. I start 69 to you. I never pick up my phone. So what's up? Uh, well, you're not going to believe this. No, man, it could be worse. A woman could cut off your penis while you're sleeping and toss it out the window of a moving car. There's always that. This is a scene that was written where they first have their kind of real kind of thesis scene. It was written very late in the game, and I think it was uh, Andy Walker who, who kind of came in and figured this one out. We could never, we could never figure out how to sort of begin Tyler's rant, as it were, his anti-consumerism uh, leanings. We could never present them. We could never announce them. And finally, we, the four of us, Brad and Edward and, and Andy, sat down for a couple of afternoons and just sort of spitballed this scene. And he came back with some pages, and we threw about half of it out. And then I put two cameras on them and kind of just let them go. And so the, both these angles being recorded at the same time, and we shot thousands of feet on this, just saying, okay, now I'll try to kind of get this idea, and okay, now try, and we just sort of let them go wild. But one of the great things about shooting with two cameras is every time Brad does his little hand gestures, you can see them in the other camera, and, and they're actually in sync, which is always total nightmare when you're doing it single camera. But um, it was one of those scenes where we just... You know, DPs hate this. They hate lighting for two cameras. But we just went in and said, here are the two cameras. They're both on 35s and bring lots of film. I think we shot like 37, 38 takes of the scene. Probably shot 40,000 feet that day, which is a lot. My, my insurance is probably going to cover that. What? Things you own end up owning you. But do what you like, man. Oh, it's late. This is probably my favorite scene in the movie. I, I think the first punch that Edward delivers as the narrator, the first... It was always a question, like, can you bring the audience to this... Can it be an innocent enough thing? Because it's not supposed to... I guess there are undercurrents of sadomasochism throughout the movie, but there's supposed to be the initial kind of um, hook in his cheek for Edward Norton's character. It's, it's supposed to come from this very, like, 
I don't know. I've just been thinking about this thing, and maybe I'm wrong, and you know, I'm doing you a favor. If you want to spend the night at my house or if you want to spend the week at my house, if you could just do me this one thing. I've been thinking about it, and I'm not really sure where it's going. I don't really know what it's about, but if you could just hit me, I think there's something in this. And I was always very concerned that we'd be able to pull off this kind of innocent, that could come from this innocent place of like, you know, do it, just just try it, and that it wouldn't feel forced, that it wouldn't feel um, manufactured. And I think it was take 10 we shot of the, of the master. I remember just almost falling out of my chair. It was so funny the way he hit Brad in the side of his head with that completely limp, you know. It just looked like two five-year-olds on a playground, and just like this experiment, this like raw experiment in, okay, I'm going to try this. And it just cracked me up. Brad's reaction, being punched in the ear, was just so... It just seemed like the camera was still rolling and this guy was... It was like, where are the stunt guys? Like, why Why did this happen? Ouch. When I was 16, I used to work in a theater as a projectionist. And I worked for this guy who literally collected, not pornography, but he collected... The most bizarre, he collected frames from movies. Like he had the the anamorphic squeezed um, breasts from the body double in Dress to Kill. And he had like Nancy Allen's panties, like a shot of the joystick from the, in the B-25 and Nancy Allen's panties in 1941. He had all these like little tiny shavings from films and there were all these kind of they weren't even like girly magazines they were like so kind of <laughs> they were so innocent but he had this whole collection it was in an envelope that was taped up to the window i remember just seeing this collection grow and grow and grow it was such a bizarre thing but i remember reading the book and just laughing out loud because it's so true projectionists have these weird like little proclivities that they you know expand upon nobody knew brad was going to like do his big jumping thing where he jumps up and down so he just goes out of frame but i always love the idea of a character who just sort of leaps out of the top of the frame to prepare themselves for this really stupid shot crazy you want me to hit you that's right what like in the <laughs> face <laughs> surprise me this is so fucking stupid I remember we came to to um, Long Beach to shoot this sequence, and I had gotten with the transportation coordinator and said, I need just like a regular old, like an old beat-up car. You know, I don't care what it is. Just find me some old beat-up car. And, and we got down there, and, and there was this station wagon sitting there, and I thought, that station wagon looks really familiar. And I walked up to the to the uh windshield and looked at the car and it had a sticker on the inside of it that said crs and it was one of the vehicles from the game it's actually the the car that james reborn takes michael douglas into the crs parking garage and i was just like you cannot get away from the past <laughs> no you hit me come on We should do this again sometime. 
This is a house that we built in. It's down in Long Beach at the. Um, it's probably gone now. I mean, not the. I know the house is gone, but this whole there's like six blocks. It was going to be redeveloped as the new port, and so we got this deal on this empty lot, and we built this house. And it was wild. I remember we went down there one day to look at the progress of the house, and you know this whole. I mean, it was basically like acres and acres of land that's all going to be torn down. There were all these like you know. Uh, scrap metal dealers dealerships and and car repair places and so we started building this victorian facade there and i remember going down one day and the sun was setting and people would be driving by and they would see these people constructing this house out there and this guy rolled his window down and he said i don't know if you guys know this but i don't know who sold you this land but they're gonna <laughs> they're, he was very concerned that we've been ripped off that we were now building this house on this piece of land that was going to be reclaimed by the Port Authority, and we were like, no, 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 it's okay, we, we, we were aware of that. Michael Kaplan, who did the costumes, brought me this uh, photograph of Brad in this red leather jacket that he found in this um, thrift store. I looked at it, I thought, eh, it's kind of cool. It's, I mean, red, it's kind of a little loud. And he's like, no, 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 this is a Tyler thing. Tyler should really be like the kind of guy who doesn't understand just how loud his clothing is. He should really kind of dress awfully. And that was Brad's take, too, was he, he just doesn't care. I mean, he just, he has no idea that wearing rust-colored polyester pants and tan Gucci loafers and a bright red leather jacket is in bad taste. And so I kind of went along with this thing, thinking, okay, well, if that's the way it's going to be, that then that's fine. And I remember seeing a photograph of the, the Halloween parade on Santa Monica Boulevard in Boys Town, and there were like <laughs> 20, 25 guys in red leather jackets looking like Tyler Durden as part of the parade. It was very, very funny that, well, there's our movement. The previous occupant had been a bit of a shut-in. Hey, man, what are you reading? Listen to this. It's an article written by an organ in the first person. I am Jack's medulla oblongata. Without me, Jack... I love the idea of having a house big enough you can ride a bicycle through it. There's a whole series of these. I am Jill's nipple. I am Jack's colon. Yeah, I get cancer. I kill Jack. After fighting, everything else in your life got the volume turned down. What? You could deal with anything. If you could fight anyone, who would you fight? Fight my boss, probably. Really? Yeah, why? Who'd you fight? Found my dad. I don't know my dad. I mean, I know him, but he left. It was originally it was supposed to take place in the in the backyard, and they were going to be on their backs, looking up at the <clears throat> on this old rusted out swing set that looked like a complete disaster for children to ever play on. And they were sort of laying there on their back, smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and looking up at the sky. And they and then we got there to shoot that scene, and there was so much noise and so many 
problems and and you know we couldn't put the cameras where we wanted to we ended up shooting this kind of it was a sort of a vague version of it and then i later on as we were completing the film they were about to tear down the big paper street interior set at uh stage 16 at fox i remember thinking we're never going to get a chance to shoot in this house again and maybe there's a scene that that we could have staged better and i remembered that scene i never really liked the way that it turned out um it was a little too posed and then i got this idea that i love the idea that Tyler is so comfortable with himself, not only what he wears, but that he could just be naked. He could just wander naked, you know, and it wouldn't be like a, like, you know, you'd be on the phone, oh my God, my roommate's naked again. It was like, he just doesn't care that they could actually be like dressing wounds while, you know, that that, that Edward could be dressing his, his bruised knuckles while, you know, Brad was in the in the bathtub scrubbing in this disgusting water. So we went back in and we shot it in a half day, just set up two cameras and had a chance to resuscitate it. A lot of movie making is fucking things up so that you can then kind of go, oh, this is what it should be. You know, it's like every time I hear about how Woody Allen shoots for six weeks and then goes down for six weeks and cuts the film and then comes back and shoots for another six weeks, you just go, that is the way to do it because the preconceived notion oftentimes is the thing that makes movies feel so stilted. I don't know how great it is now, but it, but it was so much better than it was. It was it just seemed so precious. And then all of a sudden, it was like, well, we can just walk up here and before they tear this thing down and bang this thing off. And oftentimes just living with stuff so that you kind of go, no, 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 this is what it should be. Because there's so much time and energy spent about like making a decision and getting specific and hemming yourself in because there's so many ways that a scene can go there's so many different ways to skin a cat a lot of times you find yourself going all right well we'll do that because we're going to be in that area and we'll do it in this way and, we'll, and a lot of times it's i think we shot the scene originally in the backyard because we loved the way the backyard looked and then finally we you know once it was done it was kind of like this is stupid let's re let's fix it Every week, Tyler gave the rules that he and I decided. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Third rule of Fight Club, someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out. The fight is over. Fourth rule. Only two guys to a fight. Fifth rule, one fight at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no shirts, no shoes. Seventh rule, fights will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. This kid from work, Ricky couldn't remember whether you ordered pens with blue ink or black. But Ricky was a god for 10 minutes when he trounced the maitre d' of a local food court. Sometimes all you could hear were the flat, hard packing sounds over the yelling. 
Or the wet choke when someone caught their breath and sprayed. You weren't alive anywhere like you were there. But Fight Club only exists in the hours between when Fight Club starts and when Fight Club ends. There's a scene coming up at the food court where he's there having a having a salad and an iced tea. I love this image of Edward. Edward had this very specific idea about the sunglasses that he should be wearing. So he, you know, we kind of like had to wait for these sunglasses to come over from his trailer because he had these, you know, I was like kind of like, whatever, sunglasses, who gives a shit? And we're waiting, we're waiting. His assistant runs down and gives him these sunglasses and he puts them on and he just looks like <laughs> It's so great because it's such a half-assed Mission Impossible kind of like they're trying to be cool, but they're just not, they're just not right. And you look at him and you go, he, exactly right because it's just the image of this guy in this gray suit with this Adam's apple and this bruise and these and these kind of trendy sunglasses and it says great things about the secret society of Fight Club it just always cracked me up look like how Calvin Klein or Tommy Hilfiger said they should Is that what a man looks like <laughs> uh, self-improvement is masturbation now self-destruction excuse me In the fight scene where Brad pummels a guy's nut, we got that from <laughs> Ultimate Fighting Championship. When we were reviewing tapes, at the beginning we were looking at what fights should look like. It, if people really want to win fights, it's a different thing than when they're trying to kind of box or if it's kind of professional fighting. And something about the Ultimate Fighting Championships, because you have these guys with these completely different disciplines. You have some, some of them are, you know, boxers and some of them are street brawlers and some of them are like Gracie Jiu-Jitsu guys. It's always really interesting to watch that stuff. So we really looked at a lot of it and it was so raw, the fighting in it was, so, and the people bleed so much when you see them, when you see a guy get his nose broken and it, when you see somebody get hit with the the palm of somebody else's hand and their nose just moves over like an inch and a half across their face. It's just a completely different thing than watching Evander Holyfield, although there's some good things in that too. But we, I remember this thing where this guy just pummeled this other guy's nuts and and I was just looking at Brad and he was just going, we got to get that in somewhere. That's about the most effective way to win a fight. Fight Club became the reason to cut your hair short or trim your fingernails. Okay. Any historical figure? I'd fight Gandhi. Good answer. How about you? Lincoln. Lincoln? Mm. Big guy, big reach. Skinny guys fight to the burger. I love the sentiment of this, the, the idea that, yeah, the Mona Lisa is falling apart, that, you know, there's only kind of two constants, entropy and chaos. And I always wanted the film to embody that. There's entropy and then cut to Marla and there's chaos. How'd you find me? You left that forwarding number. I haven't seen you in any support groups. I love how she's always trying to commit suicide. She always has things wrapped around her neck, or she's always kind of throttling herself, or choking on smoke, or perched on these dangerous shoes and walking into traffic. She's a very, very gifted actress. And when I explained to her this scene, she was like, you know, well, it's just all going to be close-ups of my face. I said, yeah, but you're going to be moving around this whole room. There's going to be like, you're 
heads over the side of the bed here, and then you sit up into this close-up, and then you flop down into this close-up, and then you roll over into this other close-up. She was so amazing at it. She just cracks me up. And for somebody who's this extraordinarily beautiful, she is so not interested in presenting herself in a beautiful way. I mean, she would have the, the makeup artist put her eye makeup on with her left hand because she's like, well, Marla wouldn't know how to do eyeliner right, so try this. So she would come in with these giant smears of eyeliner and fake eyelashes that were kind of stuck to her cheekbone and stuff. She was pretty hilarious. I don't know how to shoot sex scenes. I don't know how to ask people to... I mean, it just seems really embarrassing and silly. I can't imagine... Pornography seems to me to be a little bit more honest. I mean, it could probably be easier for me to shoot pornography than it would be to shoot the love scene from Top Gun because I just go, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to, you know, okay, you really need to moan, but you need to moan lovingly. You know, it's just, it's awful. You know, do people like lick each other's throats or do they, what do they got to do? So we were really, I was actually kind of like scared. I didn't know how to approach it. And then I saw this, um, Rolling Stones video that uh, Michelle Gondry did, Hair Savita's shot. It was all these still cameras. And, you know, it's a technique we've seen since then. And it was used pretty effectively in The Matrix and, and a lot of television commercials. But I just thought, I mean, I just couldn't bring myself to ask people to feign that. And so I thought maybe well, at least if we did it this way, because it's supposed to be kind of a dream. It's supposed to be... In an odd way, it's not supposed to represent what really happened. It's supposed to represent what he remembers happening. or And it's supposed to be easily confused with his obsessive thoughts about her. And so I thought maybe this would be a sort of heightened reality. So we ended up doing this. I mean, it ended up being even weirder because, of course, you have these two actors who are ostensibly naked and they're covered with these little dots. You have to put dots all over them. Brad had, because his skin was darker, had white dots all over him. And Helena had black dots all over her. And then we would plot the course that the camera was going to move with still cameras. And then we would fire the still cameras. And they would be sort of in the, in the throes of some orgasmic. So it ended up being just as awful as having to actually shoot it. But still, at least it was like you could hide behind all these cameras and, you know, come out with your slide rule and take measurements of people's eyebrows and stuff and make it seem like you weren't looking at the crack of their ass. It ended up being very, very weird. With actors that people know, you have to be so careful about where the negatives get processed and who handles the stuff and make sure that it doesn't end up at Entertainment Weekly. So you have all these, like, you know, security issues. They're naked, and there's cameras all around them. And, uh, you know, we, like, strategically positioned where sheets and stuff were, but still, it would have been an interesting photo op. So we end up doing this thing, and then, you know, and it becomes very clinical. You know, you're, it was more about this kind of technique than it was about more thrusting, more thrusting, more moaning. She's a monster. You have every reason to live. She's infectious human waste. Good luck trying to save 
You're gonna have to keep me up all night. I'm fucking believable. He was obviously able to handle it. You know what I mean, you fucked her. No, I didn't. Never? No. You're not into her, are you? No, God, not at all. I am Jack's raging bile duct. Are you sure? You can tell me. Believe me, I'm sure. Put a gun to my head and paint the walls with my brains. Well, that's good, because she's a predator posing as a house pet. Stay away from that. <laughs> and the shit that came out of this woman's mouth, I never heard. The shot of the um, condoms in the, in the toilet was the one thing that we... <laughs> we ended up getting studio notes on. It was like the one thing that they just said, you cannot have this. This is just awful. These condoms. I remember getting these condoms in and filling them with like cream rinse and twisting them off and trying to get them to float in the center of this toilet. We shot like 10 takes of it and everybody was like, oh, you have enough of this. It's funny the things people are offended by. <laughs> you would think in a movie like this that that would be the least of anyone's worries, but the condoms floating in the toilet. And then of course you cut to the next scene, which is Edward eating out of Tupperware. And uh, so many people drew the Eisenstein conclusion that he was eating condoms. So, the human mind, it works in such mysterious ways. A little homage to Blade Runner. All the water pouring down the walls. I might not have heard them. But I didn't. This is one of my favorite scenes to shoot. It was this moment that on the page when Edward comes up the stairs and he looks into the room and he's got to be shocking, shockingly curious about what it is that's going on there because she's having this like minute-long orgasm. And it's human behavior to want to find out what is going on. And then the fact that Brad completely busts him. And then this is Brad's idea, the, the rubber glove where he kind of points in the background and says, you want to finish her off? And I remember the studio came back with saying, you have to get rid of that. It's like, there's no way. That is not funny. It is too awful. And we shot the day's dailies, and we only printed that one take. And uh, Laura Siskin, who had, from the beginning, said, you have to cut this scene. This is just awful, and no one is ever going to think that it's funny. And she had never seen the rubber glove. And apparently everybody in dailies fell out of their chairs laughing, and she was just so mortified. But she called me, and she said, you had to put a rubber glove on her. I said, that was Brad's idea. Tell him, if you've got a problem with it, you should call him. Call CAA. But uh, it was probably the biggest laugh in the in the previous screenings. It should be a little bit shocking. I don't know, that kind of stuff doesn't really shock me, but it got good nervous laughter. In the original script, it was a line that was taken from the book. Marla has this line where, in the flashback scene, where Tyler's recalling his evening spent with Marla, he quotes her where she says, I want to get um, pregnant, I want to have your abortion. And this is a line that everybody had problems with. And, and it was in the book, and I always felt that it was such a great... Because I always thought of Marla as being this sort of romantic nihilist. She's almost pretending to be something more extreme than what she really is in order to kind of challenge Tyler. It's a line that we shot. We were 
we fought for it and we shot it and and everyone hated it everyone thought it was just awful Tyler remembers it and he sort of laughs about it afterwards he does his like little <laughs> as he's lighting up a cigarette and when we previewed it for an audience it was a huge laugh and Laura Ziskin who hated it came out to me afterwards and she said you're absolutely right it's one of the funniest lines in the movie and people laughed but please do me a favor will you shoot something to cover it just in case we get into censorship issues or if we have problems in the bible belt or can you please just do something and i said okay i'll make a deal with you if i shoot something else you have to use it i'm not going to go and, and reshoot because we got a big laugh from it and and if we're going to reshoot it it has to be something that i'm more happy with and if i am then you have to give me the leeway to see it in the final movie she said anything you can shoot anything you want just replace that and we had scheduled to reshoot the scene and the only place that we could do it was at the end of a, a reshoot schedule we were shooting in a church and the only place that we could set up our bed and lights and everything was actually in the rectory <laughs> and so I brought the actors in and we started to rehearse the thing and they're literally surrounded by like gowns and crucifixes and I mean it was the most inappropriate place to have this line about abortion so i was like oh i can't ask him to do that again i can't ask i can't even do something about abortion in here it's just too we're, we're all gonna go to hell so brad and helena and i came up with this idea that she or actually i came up with the line i haven't been fucked like that since grade school and i whispered it to her and she started laughing and so we went into the place where we were shooting they got in bed and then we had this thing where she was going to fall back and say this line and he was going to just give her this you know kind of ferris bueller like look to the camera like wow what if i stepped in here and so she did the line and and the crew just i mean i don't think there's there's probably one more frame of the shot that we could use before the camera starts shaking because the camera operator is laughing and everybody started cracking up but um, she delivered it perfectly. My God, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. And so we cut it into the movie, and we did one last preview screening, and afterwards, Laura Ziskin came to me, and she said, will you please, please put the abortion line back in? This is just awful. But um, it was too late. Underwear inside out, bound with electrical tape. Well, then it suits you. Sometime. When Marla comes to uh, to Edward's character, to the narrator in the kitchen, and she does the thing where she sort of rubs up against him and she puts her arm around him, and and <laughs> on the day I always knew I wanted this thing where where she puts her hands like on his stomach or she sort of threads her fingers together and sort of holds him. But she had the cigarette in her hand. She said, "What do I do with the cigarette?" And I said, "I don't know." And so she did this thing where she brought her hand around, and the cigarette became this like perfect kind of you know this tiny thin white phallic symbol just smoldering we always wanted that to end up being the poster if we could get them to go for it but i loved him in his little uh, nasty white cotton boxers with this smoldering cigarette pointed out and uh, that was just a a bonham carterism you still waste time with her Say this about Marla. At least she's trying to hit bottom. What? And I'm not. Sticking feathers up your butt does not make you a chicken. What are we doing tonight? Tonight? Yeah. We make soap. 
Really? To make soap, first we render fat. So many weeks were spent on trying to devise a material that would look like liposuction fat. The prop master, Bucky Moore, um, when I, I had these offices in, in Hollywood when we were starting to prep the movie, and every day at like, you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he would bring up these um, biohazard bags filled with different kinds of liposuction material. Some of it was fat, some of it was like, you know, there would be all these different collagen and all these different kinds of things that have been, and he would bring these bags in and, it was so revolting, but but for weeks of seeing these things every day, you kind of get inured to the whole thing. You don't really like it; doesn't mean anything to you after a while. And they were trying to concoct these uh, phony versions of whatever this material looked like, and it kind of looked like chicken skin and and sort of rubber cement, and you know, mixed with like a little bit of blood and snot and all this stuff. It was just horrifying. So they came up with this concoction that. Um, you know, I'd pretty much kind of had exhausted any kind of any revolting quality that it had or any revolting spell it could cast on me. And I remember going out to shoot that scene and they climb over the thing and the bags rip and the stuff spills out and the crew just, they were close to vomiting. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, maybe this is going to work. Because it didn't look, it just looked to me like, oh, yeah, it's just a little stringy on that last one. It's a little too orange, you know, but... uh but as soon as it ripped open and all the camera assistants started their gag reflexes, that's when I knew we were on to something. Human sacrifice was once made on the hills above this river. Bodies burnt, water seeped through the wood and ashes to create lye. This is lye, the crucial ingredient. Once it mixed with the melted fat of the bodies, a thick white soapy discharge crept into the river. Answer your hand, please. What is this? This is a chemical burn. Ah! Ah! It'll hurt more than you've ever been burned, and you will have a scar. What are you doing? Guided meditation worked for cancer. It could work for this. Stay with the pain. Don't shut this out. No, no, no. Chuck is truly a fucking genius. I mean, he's like got this whole... And he's really, really thought this stuff out. He's really like... He, I mean, the book is so much more intricate than the movie. I mean, the movie's like kind of a pale imitation i mean he really understands the sociology of it in a profound way and Uhls, of course had the completely despicable task of trying to take all these things that have been you know i mean it's a 240 page or 250 page book you know it's very dense i mean even though it's kind of surface and glib and he touches on these things in such a great way that you only kind of retain the things that he needs you to know and then when you finally get to it and you find out oh my god this person never existed and you kind of go back you realize there's so so much deeper than you ever thought but Uhl's really figured this shit out he really like went through and kind of figured out the scenes that were the best you know the best use of screen time that's kind of amazing he did an amazing job we started off with the idea that we would only see Tyler in singles, that Tyler would never be in a two-shot unless he was in a two-shot with Edward. You were always over Edward to see him. But we kind of ended up abandoning that because it didn't seem necessary. I think... 
the end of the scene where the guy with the shaved head, when he pounds Edward's face into the floor, and then when he gets up, Tyler says, okay, new guy, you're next. But no one's really looking at him. You just see, you know. Uh, so I think it's all pretty airtight. You know, there's definitely, I mean, the car scene is, is the big cheat, but we get that out of the way. That could be just a figment of his imagination. Certainly, there's enough other things. It was beautiful. We were selling rich women their own fat asses back to them. He was wearing his yellow tie. I didn't even wear a tie to work anymore. The first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about... This is a scene, it's the scene where the boss comes in and has found the rules of Fight Club in the Xerox machine. It's a scene that's in the book, and it's a scene that was in the script, and we always thought it was really, really funny, the idea of, you know, Edward Norton as... As Travis Bickle, you know, this guy who's right on the verge of exploding. And it was one of those things that was it was really, really, really funny until Columbine. <laughs> and then all of a sudden this scene just took on this completely different... It was one of those things where in the early cuts of the movie, when we show it to people, they would laugh. The notion of Edward, you know, physically threatening the boss was a funny one. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had the Columbine massacre and then the scene became, it was amazing to watch, you know, how public opinion gets swayed by tragedy. And then when we started previews, of course, it just wasn't funny anymore. People were really kind of very uncomfortable and very nervous, but it was a scene that we couldn't lift because it has the phone call in it from Marla and, and him going off to find the lump in her breast. It was one of those things that we sort of painted into a, a narrative corner. We couldn't really lose the scene after that. What are you talking about? I need you to check and see if there's a lump in my breast. Go to a hospital. I can't afford to throw money when a doctor. I don't know about this, Marla. Please. She didn't call Tyler. I'm neutral in her book. That's nice. Taking food to Mrs. Hanover, Mrs. Raines. Where are they, exactly? Tragically, they're dead. I'm alive and I'm in poverty. You want any? No, no. I got one. There's this hotel that we found in downtown L.A. that we really liked, the Hotel Bristol, and I thought it had a very sort of New York feel or an ur urban feel. It didn't, you know, didn't have the sort of horizontal expanse that you normally associate pictorially with LA it seemed kind of vertical and it seemed like kind of a late 30s or late 20s like apartment building and so we were shooting there and I really thought it was like a great find it was like wow this the hotel Bristol's really kind of you know a little gold mine that we'd stumbled upon and then literally the night after we shot this I was watching HBO and Gia that Angeline Jolie movie was on it <laughs> The whole thing shot out in front of the Hotel Bristol. And I was like, oh, there's just nothing that hasn't been seen to death in Los Angeles. I love the scene where Bob comes back into the movie because I love the energy that Meat has in this. He's so sweet. He's so happy to see him. He really is. And his life is really kind of 
gotten back on the right track. He's really discovered this thing that's changed his life. And I love the irony that, that indeed he's picked up on Fight Club. He's now part of another chapter of Fight Club that Edward, or that the narrator doesn't even know about. And this was sort of the beginning of planting the seeds that this thing is bigger than Tyler and the narrator, or bigger than Brad and Edward and, and Meat. He's so funny in it. He has this incredible charm. And of course, we, you know, we gave him the requisite kind of, you know, fat guy stuff. He's got his carton of donuts that he's eating in the middle of the night as he's wandering along the streets. When we cast Meatloaf, I'd always had this image of him, you know, as a 310-pound guy. And of course, when I met him, he's he's really almost twiggy compared to how you think of him. So we actually had to make this fat suit for him. Not only so he could have the breasts, but also so he could have the girth, because the love handles that spill over his jeans and his jugs are all fake. So he has this suit that he wears that's filled with bird seed. I wanted to have Rob Bottin make us a, a pliance so he could fight with his top off. We were going to make this like rubber suit or flexible like skin-like suit so you could see him with his tits flapping down, but we decided that was... <laughs> too much but meatloaf would wear this thing and he would go and he'd do these fight scenes and it was so heavy he would just be drenched in sweat after every take because he was flopping around with you know 50 60 extra pounds of like bird seed in these giant burlap sacks that were attached to his chest so in between setups they would rush out there with oxygen masks and put them on him and i was convinced we were going to kill him with all of the jumping around and, and fight stuff that he had to do because he was incredible, you know, trying to do these choreographed fight scenes. And actually there's a scene later on in the movie when they start handing out the uh, homework assignments and you see Brad handing out these envelopes. And in the background, unfortunately, it's too dark, you can't see it, but you can see meat with like a little um, blood pressure cuff like around his arm and there's a giant bottle of oxygen and, and he's got the mask to his face and he's sucking on it as these guys exit Lou's Tavern. We always thought that would be kind of a great thing that one of the guys in Fight Club who worked in a dentist's office or something brought this like bottle of oxygen. No great war. No great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. We're very, very pissed off. Yeah. First rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about... sign on the front that says Lou's Tavern. I'm fucking Lou. Who the fuck are you? Tyler Durden. This is a particularly horrific fight to shoot when Lou comes in and not the punching out of Brad, but this wasn't in the book, but we were trying to find a scene, sort of the Nuremberg rally where Tyler kind of addresses the troops and you get to see him, you know, we're the middle children of history speech. He kind of 
indoctrinating them and he's sort of giving them his take on things and then Lou comes in and uh, beats him up I didn't want the Christian turn the other cheek. I, I wanted to kind of modernize that in some way. But I love the idea that, you know, we live in a time and place where if you were standing in line somewhere and somebody came by and brandished a gun, that would be frightening, but probably not as frightening as if somebody took a test tube filled with blood and like spattered you with it. You'd be almost more shocked and, and horrified by that. I definitely wanted to get in the kind of the idea to turn the other cheek thing to this AIDS generation extreme. Everybody back. <laughs> ah, Lou. Come on, man. We really like this place. <laughs> Peter Arcangelo, the actor who plays Lou, you know, had to lie there for <laughs> five or six hours while Brad spewed, you know, fake blood, but still it's like spitting it and it's coming out of his nose and it's dripping all over this guy and it's spattering him in the mouth and in his eyes and it's just horrifying. And, you know, after about five hours, I mean, he was truly fed up with us and did not want to shoot one more take. You only see it for a little bit, but it was, you know, hours and hours of shooting with blood just spraying out of out of Brad's hairline and out of his ears and nose and mouth. And between every take, you'd have to, like, clean him off and get him a new shirt and redo his hair. And, and so it was just a, a monumental, like, continuity nightmare. Thanks, Lou. You too, big guy. We'll see you next week. This week, each one of you has a homework assignment. You're going to go out. You're going to start a fight with a total stranger. You're going to start a fight. And you're going to lose. This is a funny scene. Stuart, who, who plays the Cadillac dealer, um, we actually got him to kick his loafer off at exactly the right moment as he gets pushed over the hood of the El Dorado. He actually became incredibly proficient at this. He could, you know, he'd ask you, you know, how high do you want it? So like, yeah, like 12 feet is the top of the frame. He'd be okay. And he could actually kick that Gucci loafer <laughs> up in the air. And he asked you, how many spins do you want? How You want a half gainer or whatever? He was, he got so good at it. And that's in the scene where Holt hits Matt Winston, who's the priest, as he's running away, the camera actually bounces at that point because the camera operator started laughing. So like take three, and we sort of didn't know what was going to happen. We sort of walked him through what it was, and we saw him spray it. And in the close-up camera, which is you know like a 300 millimeter lens, the camera operator starts laughing. And then in the wide shot, as he pans over with him, and as he hits him, he starts laughing again, and and the camera bounces. Where to begin? With your constant absenteeism. 
with your unpresentable appearance, you're up for a review. I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. What? Let's pretend. You're the department. In this scene, we ended up doing a reshoot of this for Edward's side because we kind of got a different idea on how Edward should play this. So we went back in and reshot Edward's profile. And in the interim between the first time we'd been in this office building shooting and when we came back, they'd changed the uh, thermostat on the wall behind it. So it wasn't silver anymore. It was black. So that's it. <laughs> the walls were still painted the color that we painted them. But every time I look at that scene, I see the thermostat in the background change from being a black thermostat to being a silver thermostat. Things that I know. I don't even have to come into the office. I can do this job from home. Who the fuck do you think you are, you crazy little shit? Security? I am Jack's smirking revenge. This stuff, the stunt stuff in here is really, except for the actually hitting the, the coffee table, is Edward. And he really just knocked himself off his feet. And he's pretty amazing at it. He could do this Fosbury flop like from a standing position that was truly amazing. Why would you do that? Oh my god. No! Please stop! What are you doing? Originally when we were shooting this, we kind of like got off on the sort of Jerry Lewis thing. And I was always wondering whether or not it would work. But this is, a lot of people really love the scene, think it's very, very funny. I just always worried that it wasn't violent enough. But I love it when he hits himself. Once he's sort of in that moment of pause where he's sitting there at the bottom and then he just hauls off and cracks himself in the face two more times. We rigged this tube on the other side of his nose. We had that guy actually crawling behind him, spraying the blood out because you can't have blood tubes be too far away from the source of their blood bottle. So we actually had somebody crawl along the floor after Edward squirting blood out. Look, give me the paychecks like I asked, and you won't ever see me again. And right then, at our most excellent moment together. Oh, thank God. Please don't hit me again. Telephone, computer, fax machine, 52 weekly paychecks, and 48... There's a lot of little things in the corner of the frames. Like I, I really like when Edward's been fired and he's taking all this fax machine and computers and all these things that he's stolen from his office. It's some sort of bizarre form of severance. And he's wandering down the hallway and you just see Ian Bailey, who's the guy who plays Ricky, who's just in the corner of the frame and there's got this kind of look on his face. He's watching Edward and he's so impressed with him. And uh, I love those little, little tiny things in the background that someday, someday someone will see it. I am Jack's wasted life. This is a scene where Brad's handing out the envelopes and right there in the back under that light is meatloaf with a mask on sucking oxygen out of an oxygen bottle this was one of the first shots that we ever did and we came back and ended up reshooting it because we couldn't see that the guys were destroying uh satellite dishes so we ended up redoing that and the erasing of the tapes at blockbuster was a 
on one of those scenes that we didn't really think people would get the idea of taking a bulk degausser and degaussing tapes that are on the shelf, but it turned out a lot of people laughed at that, or a lot more. People understood the whole degaussing thing better than we could have anticipated. Fight Club up in Delaware City? Yeah, I heard. This scene was really kind of a, you know, we, we had the the Range Rover in the back, which is the first car they hit. Then they hit a BMW. Then they go past the little uh, Hyundai. And then they come upon the, uh, the Volkswagen Beetle, the new Beetle. And Edward was just adamant that they have to hit the new Beetle because he's, he's so angered by the idea of baby boomers recycling of their own <laughs> kind of... Uh, historical references so he's like i gotta beat that car up i think we rented all these cars and then we returned them all bashed in We had this different order to the scenes. Um, originally, Edward quits his job, beats himself up, and then he comes back and he tells Brad about it. And then the next scene is Brad kind of giving the, the Nuremberg rally and then being beaten up by Lou, sort of escalating the whole thing. But it didn't end up working as well as Lou coming beforehand because it sort of seemed... The escalation, it was sort of more clever in its escalation because you saw somebody get beaten up in a very kind of crude base kind of way and then Brad bleed all over him and say, you know, you don't know where I've been, Lou, you don't know where I've been. And then to see that be taken into the workaday world, it sort of seemed to work better. There was a tension when Edward comes in and says to the boss, we have to talk. You know, because you've seen them do all these things. You've seen them go out and pick fights with people and lose and 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 you're sort of waiting then for something to happen. So we ended up losing those two scenes that sort of connected the two things together. But it was, a, I loved the moment. It was a great idea for a scene. It was a, um, Edward returns home and says, look, I did this great thing. I got beaten up by the boss and, or I beat myself up in front of my boss and he ended up giving me all this stuff and don't worry about me, I'm okay. And Tyler's already thinking, we got to take this whole thing up a notch. It's it's never enough. And I love the idea of, of Edward constantly trying to sort of say, look what I did. And Brad saying, yeah, that, that's interesting, but I got this other thing I'm thinking about. So there's that constant kind of like tension there with every time the narrator thinks he's sort of standing next to Tyler and kind of can bask in, they're both kind of equals. Tyler's already off thinking about this other thing and how it can be executed. And then, um, the Raymond K. Hessel scene, as I told you, was the the one that uh, Josh Donnan told me about over the phone that made me go, well, i got to read this book. Run, Force, run! I feel ill. Imagine how he feels. Come on, this isn't funny. That wasn't funny. What the fuck was the point of that? Tomorrow will be the most beautiful day of Raymond K. Hessel's life. His breakfast will taste better than any meal you and I have ever tasted. You had to give it to him. Come on. 
He had a plan, and it started to make sense in a Tyler sort of way. No fear, no distractions. The ability to let that which does not matter truly slide. Brad and I have been talking about, since he read the book, we've been talking about this idea of of Tyler's kind of madness, you know, that we sort of see Tyler on his little rant in the basement by himself, just kind of going, you know, kind of practicing or trying to consolidate or, or make clearer his manifesto. And so we got this idea of like coming out of the explosion where you could sort of see the flame still superimposed over Brad as he's carrying these power tools around the basement. And then as the camera moves in and he looks right in the camera and he starts his whole, you're not your job, you're not how much money you have in the bank, you're not the contents of your wallet, you're not the car you drive. You know, we started going through this sort of litany of things that Tyler thinks that you, or is reminding you that you aren't. And that that's almost like the intensity of this moment actually causes the the film to jump out of the gate in the projector. And so we we had this idea and we and we just shot it on the set really simply. The camera just tracks in and then Conrad Hall, the camera operator, just started shaking the camera a little bit and shaking it back and forth on the pan ahead, you know, whatever kind of looseness there was in the gears, and he just just shaking this camera like crazy. And then we took it on a computer and we steadied it so that Brad's nose stays in the middle of the frame the whole time. We tracked it with a computer, and then we just put the perforations coming in on either side. And it's amazing to watch this movie with the projectionist who's not aware that this is going to happen because invariably when you look up to the booth after this moment, you see a guy running around in the in the booth crazily trying to figure out what the problem is, you know, what's wrong with his equipment. And there's always this like little moment of panic when you walk back there. They're always in a flop sweat kind of going... Uh, I don't know where that came from. I don't. I don't know how that happened. And we always had to tell him, no, that was supposed to be there. Does a weaker person need to latch on to a strong person? What? What? What is that? What do you get out of it? No, it's it's not the same thing. I love this scene. I I love the way that they all relate to each other in this triangle conversation, and I, and I love the idea of Tyler listening in on what they're talking about upstairs. Especially, you know, with where we're going with the reveal, I I loved that she's completely intent on the narrator and what he's saying, and you get sort of derailed halfway through with the scar, the kiss scar, and they're talking about this, and she's pumping him for information, and Tyler's overhearing this whole thing, and and I love the way that at the end he finishes off what it's the first time you see him as the puppet master and Edward as the as the puppet. This is none of your business. Leave me alone. I am not afraid to say, let me go. No, talk to me. Let go of me. No, leave me alone. The first time you see it, you think Marla's just kind of this, like, she's kind of this pathetic hoe. And then the second time you go, oh, my God, she's trying to make this work, and this guy is so nuts. Yeah, I thought that stuff worked well. You know, it's funny because I'd never seen The Sixth Sense, and I finally saw it, like, two weeks ago, and I was like, oh, no wonder people were ready for this. They'd seen that movie. I just love the idea of the scar. I thought the scar was great. We had Brad like kiss pieces of paper with, you know, lipstick on and we kept choosing, okay, that's the one we want. Then Botine went off and he made this, this appliance that was kind of the 3D kind of flocked wallpaper version of, of the imprint. And then these things would be put on. But there were people, you know, I remember doing the press stuff and a lot of people were talking about the 
homosexual undertones of the of the movie which i mean again once you're if you're working backwards from where the thing's headed and you know that you know tyler is a figment of his imagination that tyler doesn't exist then it's really more of a self-love story which i think is probably (laughs) more product of our times than it is a homosexual love story sorry if there's a misunderstanding Uh, it's not the end of the world just go away go because we're trespassing and i will have to call the police don't you look at me do you think you're ever getting in this house you're never getting in this fucking house never get the fuck off my porch get off my porch sooner or later we all became what tyler wanted us to be i'm gonna go inside and i'm gonna get a shovel shirts sir two pair of black pants yes sir one pair of black boots sir two pair of black socks sir one black jacket sir three hundred dollars personal burial money yes sir all right when we went from a two-hour, 19-minute movie down to a two-hour and 15-minute movie, something I had to give. So we tightened all the stuff up. But it was always pretty much, I mean, it's really just a distillation of the first cut, you know, just trying to get it all in. You know, it's tough with movies because you you become interested in movies for certain scenes. You know, there are certain reasons why you go, oh, yeah, no, this means something to me. And, and everybody has, actors have different scenes that they can point to that they say wow that that was the movie for me or that was the the reason for wanting to go on the quest but it's you know i i think this is pretty much the movie it's pretty much almost everything shot i mean we a couple of little scenes went by the wayside maybe a couple more should go but um we try to make all this stuff as move on screen as quickly as we could and still give it the weight that we felt that it needed. Tyler built himself an army. We are the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. We are all part of the same compost heap. Why was Tyler Durden building an army? For what purpose? For what greater good? In Tyler we trusted. No, 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 no. When he was like, you are not your job, I was like, yeah! Hey, what's all this? (laughs) Okay. I love this. This is something Brad just added. He handed him the beers and then swatted him on the ass like his... <laughs> There's a girlfriend moment. Hey, honey, you're looking good. Take these beers into the boys. But I um, I love the sort of animal house, kind of like all of a sudden he comes home and there's all these people watching TV at his place and he's he doesn't know any of them. He doesn't really... Or he knows them. He's seen them around, but he's, he doesn't really kind of know what's going on. I love the point where they begin to you know, move away from each other. And Tyler begins begins to take this whole thing to a, 
to a different place. Boxing clubs. We will be coordinating a rigorous investigation. That was Police Commissioner Jacobs who just arrived on the scene here of a four-alarm fire that broke out about an hour ago. She's Live hot. from the Parker Morris building, Lauren Sanchez, back to you in the studio. Jeff Cronenworth and I talked a lot about different kinds of movies. You know, we we wanted to make sure that we had a, a real kind of naturalistic approach. You know, I think that the visual look of this movie, it's in terms of its night exteriors and stuff, has a lot more to do with kind of run and gun. American Graffiti was a movie that we talked about because it really didn't, there was nothing precious about it, and yet it still had a real look to it. It had a real cohesive look to it. And yet uh, it's not a movie that you associate with, you know, spectacular night scenes. And yet I think that the night scenes in it are are spectacular because they're so true. They feel so real. It really feels like you're out in the middle of the night on 4th Street in San Rafael watching cars go by. It never felt like, you know, you've got a, a giant crane with musco lights down the street helping out. It just always felt very naturalistic. So that was a movie that we talked about. But, you know, we just didn't want it to be beautiful. We didn't want it to be... We didn't want it to seem too... Uh, it had to feel like it was really happening. It will be a powerful new weapon in the war against crime. the castration scene i love the idea of you know it's like tyler doesn't just say what he's going to do he literally goes he he attacks this guy who's done nothing to him but brad added the thing where he punches him in the in the solar plexus before he drags him off and you know he wraps the necktie around his neck and drags him by his neck because it re it should be scary you know here's this guy who's kind of you know puffing on cigars and telling everybody that yeah we're gonna we'll find out who these guys are and and uh, we'll make them pay. And then I love the idea that, that you have these kind of crazed, like, clockwork orange waiters just assault him. And um, I was initially going, you know, well, this guy's a, you know, he's a geriatric. You can't just, like, attack him and wail on him. He's like, no, no, absolutely. That's what Tyler would do. you got to be worried for his safety. And uh, it was exactly right. It was a moment where the audience starts to get very uncomfortable with with where this is all headed. Actually, in the back of the scene where the, the doors fly open and all the guys come out, you can see Meatloaf's pants fall off because he's got these love handles that is pants are belted around and of course every time he moves he has these giant pants and they just fall to his ankles in like two seconds and he you know has the wherewithal to stop and grab them and pull them up and belt them but it was always but it was the best take and so we just decided to go with it but you can see he's got you know fake thigh pads on and fake leg fat but uh it's one of those funny things where, you know, we shot it, shot the take, and I said, okay, that was it, and Meatloaf came up to me, and he goes, you know, I don't know if it bothers you, but in the back, you know, my pants fell off, and they went straight to the ground, and we went back and shot like four or five more takes, but that was the best one.
this is a scene that we definitely got into trouble with with the censors in um, in Britain. Um, it was funny because they they basically found that they thought that the beating was too brutal, that it went on too long. And that's really kind of the point of the scene. The point of the scene is that when the narrator's kind of position with Tyler is, is challenged by somebody else, he, out of jealousy, he beats this guy, beats this guy's face off. And I really thought that it should be a moment. I mean, it made audiences very uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. It's supposed to be that scene where you realize there's, you know, Fight Club isn't the answer. Fight Club is, it's gone too far, and it's now become an excuse for him to vent his, his frustration and rage about all kinds of other things on somebody who's not in on the joke. You know, here's a guy, you know, Jared does this great job at the beginning of playing this kind of youthful, exuberant, like, yeah, let's go, Fight Club, I've heard a lot about it, it sounds great, here I go, and Edward just demolishes him. So it was funny, people, you know, the the censors came back and said, it made us uncomfortable. We thought the fighting went on too long, and we were like, well, I guess we did our jobs. And they made us take two shots out or something. Initially, we had, there was a lot more pummeling in it, and we showed it to people, and they weren't that disturbed. And then we went back and we shot, and I just felt like we didn't have enough of the impact on the other people around them. So we shot some inserts of guys going, uh, you know, Kurt, where you see he's cheering and then he kind of turns his head away and you have the um, the crowd becoming appalled. And so that you have this moment where, where people are cheering, then people are appalled, then people stop, and then they all move to him. And when we put in the reactions of the crowd, all of a sudden people got way more disturbed than they had before. It was almost like, by giving them this little signpost that said, this is wrong, it, it got their sort of moral ire up. But it was, you know, one of those scenes that I think is a, it's a powerful scene, and it isn't supposed to be likable, you know, it's not one of those scenes where you're supposed to, like, it's not to reaffirm for you how much you're supposed to like Edward. It's supposed to reaffirm for you, you know, you've always thought that Fight Club was a little bit questionable, and this is... Fight Club and the rules of Fight Club being abused in the face of a young man being abused by Edward and his jealousies. Yeah, it was amazing to see, you know, if you just showed carnage and mayhem and people weren't as disturbed by it as they were once you put in everybody else being appalled. And nothing really changed that much in it except, you know, we added a couple of faces of people in shock and, and all of a sudden the audience was up in arms. <laughs> Guys, what would you wish you'd done before you die? Paint a self-portrait. Build a house. And you? I, I don't know. Nothing. Nothing. Come on, get in the exactly. right. I exactly know the answer to this question. If you were to die right now, how would you feel about your life? I don't know. I wouldn't feel anything good about my life. Is that what you want to hear me say? Fine. Come on. Not good enough. Stop fucking around. The scene in the car was a tricky one. We we ended up shooting it on a stage because it just had too much coverage and too much dialogue. And, and um, I remember doing so many driving shots in the rain for seven, and we could never get the lighting to match from one side of the car to the other, and it was just such a fucking nightmare. So I said, this time we're just going to do it with rear projection, and we'll have it rain on the car so that we don't get that clear look at the rear projection. It, it ended up working really well, but it was 
night after night after night of driving around with space cam hanging off the back of a intercar shooting VistaVision plates of just like lights going by, oil refineries going by, left to right, left to right, left to right. But it made it so much easier to shoot on the stage because, you know, after a take, everybody could get out, walk around. It wasn't like you had to re-rig the whole car and, you know, drive five miles and go back to the start of where you were. You could just like rewind the film, start over again. And the crash is something I, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff shot on stage and there's a lot of stuff shot on location. I think it matches really pretty well. I thought Jeff Cronenworth did an amazing job integrating a lot of stuff. And I love the idea that I love the line that Chuck had in this, which was, we just had a near life experience. And we consciously made a decision that when, when the valet pulls up, the valet is not looking at Brad, his eyeline is looking to Edward. And then Edward, of course, demurs to Brad and says, after you, Mr. Durden, and he says, after you, and then they get into the car, and Brad gets in on the driver's side, and and you have this whole dialogue sequence with Edward in the passenger seat, and then when the car flips over and it lands, you see Brad get out on the passenger side of the car, because the car is now flipped over, so he gets out on the other side, and he comes around, and he pulls Edward out of the driver's side, and I remember when we were doing the um, printmaster up at Skywalker, the guy from Dolby, was watching the movie and he goes, oh, that's too bad. And we were like, what? <laughs> he said, well, there's a little continuity problem there. I said, really, what is that? And he said, well, Brad gets out of the wrong side of the car. And I said, just wait a couple more reels. <laughs> Tell me what you think then. I mean, most of the conversations that he has, he's by himself. When he's around other people, I mean, they're always separated in Fight Club. And nobody's really clocking, you know. It's like when Brad comes walking around uh, the fight where we see the seminarian and the and the um, car salesman fight. You know, they're sort of always by themselves, so that's not really an issue. I mean, I think definitely conversations. That I, I mean, aside from the um, the conversation in the bar at the beginning, which is just a guy mumbling to himself over in the corner having a few beers, and the car crash, which I think is dealt with, where the people overhear what's happening in the back seat and they're sort of clocking each other like this guy's a loon and I don't know whether they're hearing both sides of it but they could be um, I think it checks out I always wanted to to have some kind of reminder back to the human sacrifices so we did this thing with the door where on the door there's a little <laughs> dymo labeler that says human sacrifices and then there's all these driver's licenses up there like they've really been industrious in the past couple of months. So many people moving, the house moved. Planet Tyler. I had to hug the walls, trapped inside this clockwork of space monkeys. Cooking and working and sleeping in teams. Hang on a second. I love the makeup. I love what Rob Bottin did. He really got this kind of fairly stylized because anytime you start building up the outside of somebody's skin instead of like being able to take away, which obviously you can't do to an actor, 
who works a lot. You know, you can't be carving away people's skin. But he managed to find this very um, interesting kind of mid-ground between seeing the destruction on people's faces and still being able to kind of recognize them. It's a very difficult thing to do because, you know, everybody can end up looking like uh, Island of Dr. Moreau. You know, pretty soon it's like you start building up the lumps and really in going through the research on like what happens to the human face, you know, the cadaver shots of people have been beaten to death with tire irons and stuff. And the swelling is kind of amazing how it distends. You really can't recognize, very difficult to recognize people. And so we always had to walk that line, and and Botin is a genius at that. There's a real problem in, in trying to find somebody to play Marla because you never want, I don't want people to feel sorry for her. You know, I want them to see somebody who's made choices and but is perfectly happy with the choices that she's made. You know, however questionable the you know the behavior may be, we're looking at her, her saying, "Okay, well she's okay with it, so we should be okay with it." And she does that. You know, she's a very specific actress, exquisitely so. You know, really like, what is it about? What am I playing? And she plays it so flawlessly. This is an important scene because it's really the killing of the clown. I was watching Cirque du Soleil, and uh, I've seen all of their shows, and I was always amazed at the showmanship in it because they always had this great kind of fundamental, dramatic understandings. You know, they bring the clown and you laugh at him. They bring the clown in and you laugh at him, and the third time the clown has some kind of problem and you can't solve it. And then there's this incredibly sad moment. You know, either the clown is... Something happens to the clown and the audience, you know, it's incredibly moving. And I always wondered why does, um, you know, if we're, we're going to kill somebody off or we're going to kill off Bob, it's got to mean something. It's when he gets shot, when they try the, uh, to destroy the corporate art. But um, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, when on the set, when, you know, Edward pulled off the, the mask and everybody kind of saw this incredible likeness of, of meat and just lying on the table. It was like you for a second kind of understood how poignant this moment could be and um it was always a scene i was kind of worried about but then when the mask came off it was like yikes this is truly horrible <laughs> and i love the the alexander haig quality of of uh jared in the scene where he sort of takes over he's <laughs> the billy idol second in command I love how they, you know, they really put, because Tyler's not there, and they really put Edward on the hot seat. They really make him work to assert his authority. And Edward sort of added this line, because originally they, he was like saying, what what, what are you talking, he started off incredulous, and and he added this thing, you morons, and he, and he did it in this, always made me laugh when we were watching it, because it was just, because they were kind of morons, but he was like the person that just like called a spade a spade. It's like, you morons, what are you doing running around in ski masks, blowing things up? What do you think? Robert Paulson. Come on, guys. His name is Robert Paulson. 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 
The scene coming up, we had to really kind of see this huge montage where Edward travels the country looking for for Brad. And um, as usual, you know, you end up having one day out at LAX to shoot all this stuff. And Conrad Hill Jr. came in and shot a lot of the plane stuff and did an amazing job just, you know, collecting material. I mean, in one day he got these planes going back and forth and... You know, we didn't want to end up having a map and doing the When Harry Met Sally, you know, the little animated plane going back and forth. But it had to have that kind of, it had to be photorealistic, but basically give you the same information. But it's not a scene I was ever particularly happy with. My part of it, the second unit stuff is great, but I always felt I kind of didn't have a handle on it. No, if you've seen Tyler. I'm not exposed to speak any such information to you nor would i even if i had said information you want at this juncture be able you're a moron i'm afraid i'm gonna have to ask you to leave tyler had been busy setting up franchises all over the country was i asleep had i slept is tyler my bad dream or am i tyler's we just heard the stories kind of stories like nobody knows what he looks like he has facial reconstructive surgery every three years started to wonder whether or not we'd made a mistake by everywhere he goes he finds people who are <laughs> not particularly bright or not particularly listening to what it is that he's asking and and i always like that idea that everybody who's part of the whole kind of conspiracy is just they're not the brightest bulbs on the tree but i started wondering when when we got into the testing process whether or not we'd overplayed our hand and that because, you know, you end up going, none of these idiots know anything. How is he ever going to find this guy? But I love the connection being, you know, these guys saying the, the chant, his name is Robert Paulson. And this is something that um, Botine and I talked about when he finally meets up with the bartender. We wanted the bartender to be pretty, pretty fucked up. And I always love, I, I always love those halos. I love the, I mean, not love, but you know, there's something so extreme about them. And the idea of a guy who's going, yeah, you remember you scarred me on the hand, but the scar on his hand has to be like the least of his worries. And it also does a funny thing, you know, when he kind of sits up straight and you hear that little squeak, Rand Kleist put this little as he straightens himself. But, you know, you don't know whether this guy's been in a plane crash or gone through a meat grinder or what. And he's talking about this little scar in his hand. Yeah. The scene where Marla answers the phone, we, we had shot, you know, a couple times where she just pops up into frame. And then she did this one take where she couldn't find, she couldn't get the phone off the cradle. She was like kicking it around. And we ended up using that one because I love the idea that there's this really tense moment that he's saying, quick, pick up the phone. I got to ask you this question. And she's like, click, clump, clump, clump. There's all this like ruckus going on underneath the frame. And then all of a sudden she finds the phone and stands up. And you're not really quite sure who he's calling. We have just lost cabin pressure. What did you just say? What's wrong with you? What did you just call me? Say my name. Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden, you fucking freak. What's going on? I'm coming over. No, wait, wait Marla, I'm not there. You broke your promise. Jesus, Tyler. 
You fucking talk to her about me. We talked a long time about what Tyler should be like when he reappears. We talked about him looking like, you know, this kind of buffed out, um, shaved-headed monster, this kind of uh, World Wrestling Federation kind of... And then we kind of hit on this... <laughs> Michael Kaplan brought this code in that was... It looked like something from, you know, an NXS video or something. And we got the idea of Tyler as rock star, you know, that Tyler comes back with the glacier glasses and the fur coat. And um, he is... It, this is his new kind of... His new incarnation. And I always like... I love that idea. It just... I found it so amusing that he comes back as, you know, Michael Hutchins or something. Say it. Because we're the same person. That's right. We are the all-singing, all-dancing crowd. I don't understand this. You were looking for a way to change your life. You could not do this on your own. We rehearsed this scene a lot. There were a lot of different kinds of ways you could go with this, you know, where, where Tyler spells it out for him listen dummy here's what the deal is but brad hit on this great kind of even keel of like okay you know being patient with him because he still sort of looks down his nose at him okay let me explain this to you and i love the the simplicity of that edward came up with this idea we were rapping that day of shooting and edward came up to me and he said what if you shot a version of the shot of uh, the profile of Brad and me, and, and I was leaning forward, but Brad wasn't there. So you really saw how crazy I was. And so we set the lights back up and went in and shot this uh, version of Edward just leaning on the bed, talking to no one. You have a house. Rented in your name. You have jobs. You have a whole life. You have night jobs because you can't sleep. Why you step and make soap? Marla, you're fucking Marla. Technically, you're fucking Marla, but it's all the same to her. Oh, my God. Jim Hager, who cut the movie, came up with this little flutter-cutting thing as the kind of the key for the flashbacks that you understood you were looking at a flashback, and it was from some alternate point of view because of this little, like, jerking, like, little... He took frames out of this and out of that, and so it had this, like, kind of little spastic quality to it. I love that. It just, it had such a kind of creepiness. You know, it wasn't, there was nothing kind of beautiful or smooth about reality. Reality was this sort of jarring, like, kind of feel to it. The ubiquitous Pepsi machine. We got these, um, we had this product tie-in with Pepsi, and we decided to make Pepsi part of the whole our consumer society, so everywhere we go, there's a Pepsi machine in the background. And when were these made? It says right there, sir, between two. And the numbers on, when you point at the numbers on the, uh, on the bill, he's been calling CAA all night long. They figured they wouldn't sue us. And if they did, they'd have to sue themselves for 10%. Have I been Tyler longer and longer? Anybody here? Deja vu all over again. In the background on the steps that go out to the backyard, there's like a homemade shooting gallery with these like concrete stairs and then these little clip-on like targets that are all shot up. And um, because the stairs are concrete behind it, there's also these <laughs> boxes of Band-Aids, like the full metal jacket 
shells were like ricocheting off this thing and there's all these band-aids on the thing right next on the steps right next to it like these guys are constantly being hit by fragments of bullets and they just band-aid themselves and continue their shooting practice something really terrible is about to happen at your building you have got under control sir excuse me don't worry about us sir we're solid Ed Kowalczyk from Live is the he's the lead singer of Live. He came in on a casting session and said he had read the book and wanted to be in the movie. And so I'm a huge fan. I was incredibly flattered. I just said, you know, we don't have, you know, because he was on tour and he only had a couple of days. And so as it turned out, the couple of days that he had were when we were shooting this scene. So we asked him if he wanted to be the waiter in the scene. And he said, sure. And he, so he came in and we shot shot with him and you know of course you only see him for that one thing that one shot and you cuts his face in half and when he leans over to talk to edward and then we ended up reshooting the scene so he ended up having to come back in to match himself he was an incredibly good sport about it but i was like i'm sure he will hate me it was one of those things where you oh it'll be a lark and then it ends up being like a six-month curse and you have to come back in and to do some little cameo I know that it's got to seem like there's two sides to me when you're on Two me. sides? You're Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Jackass. I deserve that, but look, I, I've come to realize something very, very important. What? Uh, the full extent of our relationship wasn't really clear to me up until now for reasons I'm not going to go into, but the important thing is I, I know that I haven't been treating you so nice. Yeah, whatever. No, 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 no. F 15 seconds. 15 seconds, please. Please, 15 seconds. Don't open your mouth or move. I'm, I'm trying to tell you that I'm sorry. Because what I've come to... Initially, it was written a little coy. He kind of comes back in and he's kind of whines and tries to ingratiate himself to her. And I just thought he just had to be like right on this, like, you don't understand. This is what's going on. It had to have a little bit more of a drive to it. And I think Edward agreed with me and we got Fox to give us the money. We went back and reshot it and we put in a couple little things we ended up pulling out because of the length. But yeah, it was much better in the reshoot. It just had a more of a kind of intensity. But I do think it's the kind of thing, it's like, it probably shouldn't have been them stopping and talking. It's still, but I love what he does. I love the fact that they're both coming from these completely different places and he knows he's been a schmuck and he knows that he's fucked this up and he knows there's no reason that she should believe him and yet he is hell-bent on getting what he wants out of it and she just thinks he's a fucking lunatic by now and is wondering why she ever let him into her life and i thought that she played that so well i wanted to have this joke at the beginning of the scene where when they run out and they're having their argument on the street where you see seven years in tibet on the one of the marquees there were three other marquees that were visible in the wide shot but you never see them because the bus is in the way but in the background there's a, a marquee for wings of the dove and uh people versus larry flint and of course we had all the marquees you know look like real movie marquees where they don't have all the letters so it was people versus larry flynn um seven year in tibe and wing of dove so it has that sort of like broken english video cassette vcr instruction manual kind of broken english vibe to it 
You're the worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, you can kind of see it just... No, you can't. You never see it, but it's it's in the far back. <laughs> I am the leader of a terrorist organization responsible for numerous acts of vandalism and assault all over the city. In the metropolitan area with probably a couple hundred members. Chapters have sprung up in five or six other major cities already. This is a tightly regimented organization. We had to shoot the interrogation scene in one day, you know, move into a location and shoot it. And so we didn't quite end up doing it the justice that I always wanted to do it. But uh, it turned out pretty good. I love the cops. They really look like cops to me. Very recently, to make large quantities of nitroglycerin. I believe the plan is to blow up the headquarters of these credit card companies and the TRW building. Why these buildings? Why credit card companies? If you erase the debt record, then we all go back to zero. You'll create total chaos. Keep him talking. I need to make a phone call. There was an idea for a scene in the original script where as Edward goes running to the 1888 building to find the bombs, where as he's running along, Brad ends up running beside him saying, hey, where are you going? You know, so it's got a real kind of Looney Tunes kind of feel to it. But we ended up cutting that out and just going with the we just didn't have time to shoot it and stage it. You know, it would have required like insert cars with cameras on them and so we ended up just having him run and have brad appear outside the uh the building as he's trying to break in i'm giving you a direct order we are aboarding this mission right now you said you would definitely say that It was it was tough to get the audience to sort of you know buy that all these people were in on it and we, it was one of those things we really wanted to get as quickly from this from the castration scene to the bomb as we possibly could. But I love the idea of you know Edward Norton as a thinking man's action hero, this guy in his underwear running down the street with a folder in the middle of the night and a 45. There's an absurdist level to this movie that was very difficult to get audiences to kind of accept. You know, we spent the last 20 years in movies trying to, you know, because we came upon the special effects technology that would allow us to do anything that looked, you know, make anything look real. And so when you do stuff that's metaphoric or you do stuff that's absurdist based, it's very, especially if, if it's photographed in a realistic manner, it's hard to get people to understand the tone. 
And that was kind of always a problem with this material. But, you know, I always felt that it was more important to try and tell this tale than it was to accept defeat initially and go, oh, we'll never be able to get people to understand the whole, you know, Doctor Strange love of it all. Edward is such a great sport about this, too. I mean, you know, there was no, there was never a moment where you would say to him, okay, you're going to be thrown down the steps in your underwear and there's not going to be, you know, he was just like, okay, and then what? No, okay, and then he's going to drag you by your hair. Okay, and then you're going to crawl under the car and he's going to drag you out and take your shoe off and beat you with it. He's like, okay, fine. <laughs> and we ended up having it was sort of a study in sadomasochism because we would just dream up things for him and he would just kind of, Go along with it. All right. I have to crawl through broken glass on my knees. All right, fine. We wanted to pay homage to the uh, World Trade Center bombing by having this be a budget rent-a-truck, but budget wouldn't give us their little stickers to put on the uh, keys and stuff. They thought it was in bad taste. Oh, Christ. Now what are you doing? I'm stopping this. Why? Greatest thing you've ever done, man. No, I can't let this happen. You know there are ten other bombs in ten other buildings? God damn it, since when is Project Mayhem about murder? The buildings are empty. Security, maintenance, all our people. We're not killing anyone, man. We're setting them free. Bob is dead. They shot him in the head. After we'd assembled the scene, we tried to time out the scene to make it as explicit as possible in terms of, you know, so they had a very measured kind of dialogue so that we could have the timer really be ticking down and have it in continuity. But um, when we went to shoot the inserts, we didn't have Edward. We didn't have his hands. So... We ended up shooting a lot of the stuff out of continuity just to get the hand movements where we wanted them. And then we matted the clock back in so that if you actually ran a clock on the videotape of this, you would find out that the, the clock is exactly right where it's supposed to be. So we just split-screened the LEDs back in. Pull anyone but the green one. Definitely the car being stolen at the beginning is a is a complete flight of fancy. There's no way that that can happen. But basically everything else is pretty bulletproof. But it is a different movie the second time you see it, you know. Wow. Okay. You are now firing a gun at your imaginary friend. I love the idea of your alternate personality this this creation of yours that just gets fed up with you at a certain point he's just like sick to death of you and your weakness and he has to kind of like he has to take over he has to like and there originally this fight scene that took place in the in the building was very kind of doctor strange love it was very much like you know this 
alien presence be and they were gonna have a whole shootout and they were like rushing around and guns firing at each other and we're gonna try to do this whole kind of die hard thing where he's he's trying to find tyler and tyler can appear anywhere at any moment and sort of beat him up but it was it ended up being very funny funny you know kind of goofy funny so we finally kind of you know about two weeks before we had to shoot this we sat down and said no this should be really brutal he should just beat the living shit out of this guy and um so when we walked in we had the whole thing staged and the stunt guys were there and they were like going okay so then what do you want us to do and then you come over here and you throw him through this window and they were like and he's in shorts i said yeah and he's and then he comes over here and he does what and you drag him out from under the car and then you guys get into this fight over here and then he takes me throws him down the side of the car and he breaks the the little side view mirror and he said with what with his face (laughs) what else and they were like going oh my god and then and then what happens and then he drags him into the the stairwell and throws him down the stairs and the guy who actually did this stunt was truly amazing i mean we probably did 11 takes of it we threw him down three flights of stairs with no pads on and uh he did it amazingly Three minutes. This is it. The beginning. Ground zero. I think this is about where we came in. Would you like to say a few words to mark the occasion? And we added this joke at the end here where Tyler says, what, I'm sorry. And he says, I still can't think of anything. And then Tyler says, oh, flashback humor. We added that one for people who are paying attention. But again, the th- the thing, you know, I love the negotiation with your with your insane, with the insane, you know, hyper stylized masculine side of yourself. I love the idea of him trying to. He's trying to reason with him now. His his ankles fucked up. He's been thrown down the stairs. His face is cut up, and he's still trying to kind of get through. He's still trying to get through to him, and so. But he's he's obviously not powerful enough. He's not physically powerful enough to overcome Tyler. But his mind is still working. He's still trying. He's looking for some way out. Don't do this. I'm not doing this. We are doing this. This is what we want. No. I don't want this. Right. Except you. And we had this idea in rehearsals as we were rehearsing this that Tyler should address this idea that. You need me. No, I don't. I really don't hey, anymore. You, you know, look at all this that I've done for you, you ungrateful fuck, you know. And also that he calls him on it, says, take some responsibility for it. And I always love that, the notion of this very intellectual argument coming down to, you know, some of the more salient points are brought up by the truly insane person. The truly insane character in the room is the one who goes, hey, hey. I didn't dream you up. You dreamt me up. This is your mess. I'll carry you, kicking and screaming, and in the end, you will thank me. I'm grateful to you for everything that you've done for me. But this is too much. I don't want this. What do you want? You want to go back to the shit job? Fucking condo world watching sitcoms? Fuck you. I won't do it. It's already done. So shut up. Sixty seconds. You see, all right. When we um, when we 
when you started cutting the trailers for the movie, there was, you know, a couple of scenes of Brad in the, in the, um, in this, he's wearing this tank top that says, I think it says black sugar on it. And it's basically like a photo collage of pornography. It's just like all these naked women, you know, with their legs spread and, and it has stars over all the offending bits. But it's still, it's a shirt that's just covered with pornography. And these shirts were made for the movie. They found this fabric and Michael Kaplan had these shirts made and Brad loved the shirts and that was the shirt that Tyler was going to wear at the end. And we'd finished, we'd finally finished cutting the trailer and we'd gotten it past the MPAA who was was loaded for bear. They were skeet shooting this entire movie. You know, every time we would send them over, they would go through it with a fucking microscope. And we finally sent over the final trailer and they approved it on the basis of a three-quarter inch dub of an avid output. But, I mean, he's standing there when he goes, whoa, 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 at the end of the trailer. He's standing there in this shirt that's just covered with pornography. And I remember finishing the trailer at the last possible second that it could be finished and sent to the theaters in order to get it on Star Wars, I guess. It was like for the big Star Wars. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I never thought this shirt would get past the MPAA. And one of the guys from Fox said, well, what do you mean? And I said, whoa, that shirt's just covered with pornography. And they were like, oh, sweating it and sweating it. Oh, my God. It's covered with pornography. What are we going to do? We're going to have to go in and, like, you know, fuzz it out or, you know, do what they do on rap videos on MTV where they, like, put that mosaic over everything. And it's just got to be the whole, you know, censorship issue on a movie like this just gets to be so hilarious. Where is everybody? I don't know. What's going on? We looped all of Edward's lines here at the end, and he actually put like rock candy in his mouth, so he has like some things in the back of his teeth, and they're actually like, clattering around. So it's like the gun has gone off in his mouth and has blown one of his back left molars out the side of his face. But he's still, he, I'm okay, I'm okay, everything's okay, let her, let her go. And I always thought, before we looped it, people were just appalled by this final scene. And then when we finally looped it so that he could kind of, he had a different voice throughout this whole thing because we shot it over like two or three days. And so in some of the close-ups, he's like, you know, ow, 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 and in other ones, his voice was clear, and, and so when you finally, like, kind of put it all together with this voice that was kind of fucked up, people just started cracking up, and that's hopefully what they should be doing. That's my feeling about what they should be doing, because I love the idea of her coming up there to finally go, you fucker, I hate your, I don't ever want to say, oh my god, what is wrong with your face? I always wanted to be able to do an effect where she reaches into her purse and pulls out some little wad of tissue that, you know, that she's, like, sneezed in, and she, like, literally tucks it in the hole in his cheek. But we can never figure out a way to do that. And he's kind of, at first, like, doesn't want her to do it. Oh, no, no, that's okay. That's all right. I'm all right. The building's coming down at the end. Um, Doc Bailey the CG artist who created all these buildings. He did uh, worked on the game and, and worked on the, when Michael Douglas crashes through the, the ceiling at the end and all the little pieces of glass fall. So we called him, we said, boy, we got a job for you. And we told him about this final shot. And he said, well, 
how much time do you have? And I said, well, as far as I'm concerned, you can start because we have to get a translight made for the set and we're not shooting it for six months. Um, you can have a year. You can have a year and two months if you want it. He said, okay. So he took this job on and all he did for one whole year was work on the final shot, making all these little falling bits of building and breaking all these buildings up. And it was it was amazing, you know, because you would go every two or three weeks, you would go by and, and see what he was up to. And he was on building number three. And he, I've got the glass to blow in building number three. But, I'm, you know, I was always wondering about if our cell phones were tapped, what CIA would be thinking. <laughs> How's it coming? Well, building number three is going to go down really, really easily. That's not a problem. But I'm worried about the blasts on building number four because I'm worried that the, if the glass goes too far out, it would be killing everybody in the street. And, you know, was, these conversations go on and on and on about what kind of destruction we should wreak. And, and of course, all the buildings are based on photographs of buildings that we took, you know, in and around L.A. So whether we're referring to, you know, a building in Century City or a building in downtown. And, you know, we would call them the Time Warner building or whatever, the Fox Tower. The Fox Tower is one of the ones that goes down the foreground. And, uh, of course, all of our conversations were... Okay, so if you blow up the Fox Tower before you blow up the other one. But he did an amazing, amazing job. Just, it was literally like a frame at a time. And in the end, you know, he was he was saying, you know, we're probably going to have like eight, 900,000 separate bits of falling stuff. And in the end, it was millions. It was like four, three or four million little separate pieces that were all falling. The glass that blows out of the towers in the background and... And the, and the smoke elements, and I mean, it was millions. It took weeks and weeks and weeks to laser record all the stuff out. There he is, Richard Dr. Bailey.